Sorry. Amen. Everybody good? Oh, thank you, Lord. Well, God is in the details, right? Yeah, but I'm not giving no message on details. I do have a, a guest speaker here today. His, this is his first time. Yeah, let's give him a hand. This is, this is Randall Worley. This is his first time coming to our church. Uh, um, let's see. I'm going to try to really make it hard on Randall, okay? <laughs> Randall really is, um, this is the truth, I, I've known him for a long time, I just reconnected with him recently, but he's always a guy I looked at like, this guy's is down the road from where I'm at. In other words, he's ahead of me spiritually, and uh, I felt that about him years ago, and have I really admired him all that time, and he's sort of here looking with a bad look on his face. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, when I reconnected with him, he's, he's still ahead of me. <laughs> Isn't that great? But that's awesome. But Randall Trout, he used to pastor a church in Pineville called Life Spring Church. He's a good Church of God man. And uh, but then he got out of pastoring, and he has been traveling all over the world for years now, just really uh, sharing revelation. And uh, and but really, he does. He's a as some one person called him. Randall's a teacher of teachers. He really is. He has a tremendous anointing for teaching the Word, but really it's a uh, five-fold teaching gift um, because there's an impartation that you get off in Randall. He has so much tremendous revelation. So what you want to do is you're going to hear some, some uh, really powerful message from the Lord, but there really will be an impartation if you can really open your hearts to receive it. So when he gets finished, we're going to uh, give him an offering. So I want you to be thinking about doing that. Since... You know, usually we take up an offering for speakers before they speak if we know them. But since you don't really know Randall, I figured I could get more money out of you. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. I get more money out of you after he speaks. But we really do want to bless him. But I'm just really thrilled that he's here because uh, Bob Jones says Randall has uh, the uh, anointing to release revelation for where the church needs to go now. Amen. That's what Bob Jones said about him. Heard him say it this week. So hey, let's just give Randall a big welcome. Well, that's quite an introduction. I, uh, I want to begin by saying that I commend Byron for having the courage to invite me. And uh, when the meeting is over, you will understand the reason for that commendation. I think we met, um, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, about 20-plus years ago. Um, you and I had been invited to a gathering of men to pray. I think uh, some guy, let's see, what is his name, Rick Joyner? Uh, they don't even know who Rick is. That's wonderful. <laughs> Rick had called together a group of men, and uh, that's when I met Robin McMillan and yourself and some others. So, you know, I, I've come to understand about relationships over the years that quite often we misinterpret the purposes of God in connections. And um, when God begins to spin us off into other places, almost like the heavens, there are planets that only come into close proximity to one another every so many hundreds and hundreds of years. And, uh, but in God's purposes, sometimes he takes us, it seems, at a great distance away. 
from those that we thought that we would be close to for years to come, only to bring us back into a spiritual orbit. Um, Jude talks about wandering stars. Do you remember that passage of Scripture? There are wandering stars. There are those that are meteoric in their purpose. They flash across the heavens with great brilliance. They light up the sky. But then it seems as if they totally fizzle, and you don't ever see them again. And I I want to be in that spiritual orbit. Does that make sense to you? And I think maybe that's why you and I came back together just a few months ago and began to sense that once again. Now, I don't know what you're accustomed to, but uh, again, this is my first time. So as a first-time visitor, it behooves you to be very cordial and hospitable to me. (laughs) Um, But uh, at at any rate, I've, I've come to understand something else about relationships over the years. I've been in ministry all my life, essentially, because my father was a pastor, And uh, as he mentioned, I pastored for 25 years and served my sentence, and they released me on good behavior. But um, I don't know how long your sentence is, but um, I've come come to understand about relationships, and I use this this analogy quite often, and I think it's very appropriate. It has relationships to me are very much like the building of bridges. I grew up in rural North Carolina most of my life, and um, I know what it's like to see those bridges that when you're approaching from one direction and there's another car coming from the other direction, there is this game almost of chicken that you sense, that awkwardness, who is going to yield to who. Usually those signs, uh, those roads are posted with signs that make it very clear that it has a certain load limit. If a tandem truck approaches it and he sees that he's carrying more weight than the bridge can bear, he has to detour because the weight that he is carrying will cause the bridge to literally implode. But there are bridges that are far more primitive than that and are unable to bear even that much weight. Have you ever walked out on a swinging bridge? you've never had that experience, you need it at least once in your life. Um, You know what they're like. They're tethered by ropes, and you feel the swinging and the bouncing, and you look down sometimes at these crude boards that are spaced apart. And when you take steps, you do so very tentatively, don't you? Those bridges are not designed to bear the weight of usually more than one or two people at a time. Usually in relationships, that's the way it starts. You'll probably maybe make a decision about me by the time that I'm finished this morning because there is that natural tentativeness that is there. But several years ago, when I first went to San Francisco, when we arrive, my wife always has an itinerary. Uh, she has places she wants to go and things she wants to see. But there, and she asked me when we arrived there, in San, this has been many years ago, she asked me when we arrived there in San Francisco, she said, what do you want to do? I said, one thing. She said, really, what's that? I said, I want to go see the Golden Gate Bridge. She said, that's all you want to do? I said, yeah. 
I just want to see this modern marvel of architecture, which now it's probably 70 years old or more. And when I got there, I, I stood there for hours, and she looked at me as if I had lost my mind. I stood there for hours and gazed at it. And I went into the gift shop, and I read everything that I could find on it. And I read about this bridge that spans the Bay Area there, that if you've ever seen it, it's something to behold, especially when you're coming into San Francisco and it's fogged in, and you can see it jutting up out of the fog and the clouds. And um, I discovered a number of different things about it, not only how long it took and lives that were lost in building it, but also that when they celebrated the 50th anniversary of its opening, that over 500,000 people walked out on that bridge. The weight was such that it actually gave a few inches, but it didn't collapse. If you remember the earthquake that hit San Francisco during the World Series many years ago, uh, it survived the earthquake. Roads collapsed, but this bridge is still there. It survived all the inclement weather of the Bay Bay Area, the, the salty and briny air that is there, the rain, the inclement temperatures. It survived all that, and it made me think about how that there are relationships that started out like a swinging bridge that eventually became a golden gate bridge where there is the ability to come and go to import and export spiritual cargo. Are you guys awake this morning? But it takes years to build that, doesn't it? So, with that said this morning, I, I feel like maybe that's why we've come back around. And um, maybe this time you won't be able to get rid of me so easily. Now, I don't know how, what time you're accustomed to getting out on Sunday morning. Two o'clock. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. I think I can be done by 2.15 at least. Huh. <clears throat> it's very important that I say this in the early going. Um, you are accustomed to watching, and I say this usually every time I go somewhere new. But I, and, and I think it's appropriate, especially with what is about to ensue. When you're watching television and controversial programming is about to be aired, you are very well acquainted with the disclaimer that usually comes on. It says, the views and the opinions that are about to be expressed are not necessarily those of the management. So, I've already said that, and remember that through the course of our time together here this morning. I will tell you this, that God has always had men, and I don't necessarily consider myself one of them, God has always had men that have a revelation beyond their dispensation. And uh, they will usually die as false prophets. You have no problem because you live with enough historical evidence, not only scriptural, but secular evidence, historical evidence, in accepting that Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. But you must realize that the men that first introduced this idea, one in particular would be Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14 and 9:6, when he starts talking about a virgin that would conceive and bear a child, 
he would be dead for 714 years. His body will be in a dusty grave before, for 714 years before it ever comes to pass. Are you awake this morning? Now, I could go on and on with that. You know, we, uh, we all have such great respect and admiration for David, the psalmist David. But when you think about what this man saw that transcended the time that he lived in, that no one had a frame of reference for, there was no one confirming his word. No one confirm, confirming his word. He sees the cross in Psalm 22. Probably more so than that, the man who has this revelation and constructs what would be called the Tabernacle of David, where the Ark of God sits in, in full view of all of Israel while it had sat behind a veil in Moses' tabernacle for centuries. But David does not have an angel that appears to him and gives him permission to bring the Ark from behind the veil. David does not have a dream. He does not have even Nathan to come to him and give him permission to do that. Somehow he had a revelation that was far beyond his particular dispensation, and he had the audacity to take the ark of the covenant where the glory of God dwelled between the wings of the cherubim out from its place of being concealed and let any and everybody have access to it. Now, that was grounds for stoning. But aren't you glad that he had that revelation? I think probably one of the reasons why that I have a reputation like you described, and I don't mean for this to sound like self-aggrandizement, is because for whatever reason, God many years ago gave me a greater faith to receive revelation than he did a fear of being deceived. Now, I've paid a price for it. There are some here this morning that I don't know why they're here. I guess they're gluttons for punishment uh, that used to be a, a part of the congregation. They were in the research and development <laughs> stages, and uh, they heard all these bizarre ideas. And, you know, I've found out in those days that pastoring a church was a lot like driving a bus. People got on and people got off and people got on and people got off. But in case you don't know, I, 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 you've come to hear someone this morning that is not content with the status quo. I'm not content with parroting what everybody else is saying. I'm just, I'm just not satisfied with that. I think really for those of us that think that we have neatly organized our doctrines and our understanding of God in the fullness. You know, you read from Ephesians 3, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says there very clearly toward the end. No, it was you. I'm sorry. That we with all saints might comprehend the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of God's love. God, we have only come to understand, as Job said in his poetic prose, he says, we've only come to understand the edges of his ways and the borders of his mind. We live in an information age where information has proliferated beyond anything like we have ever seen in any previous generation. From what I understand, and there's probably someone here 
that could address this with far more accuracy than I. But from what I understand, in the last five to ten years, there has been more advances in human understanding than there has been in all of the history of humanity. We are in that time, I believe, when many are running to and fro and knowledge is increasing, but that's just not carnal knowledge. It's revelatory. You said maybe that I have some reputation of being a teacher of teachers, which I would say to those that would consider me that, that I have more questions now than I've had in all my life. I've come to understand that intrigue, everybody say intrigue, intrigue is underrated and clarity is overestimated. Jesus was asked 183 questions that are recorded in the Gospels, and it seems like he only gave a direct answer to three of them. So if you leave here this morning with more questions than you have answers, I have succeeded. All right? All right. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2. Many of you already know this area of Scripture. You're all too familiar with this particular miracle that is the introduction of Jesus, it is his coming out. Not long after he walks into the temple, finds the place where it is written that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me as anointed me to preach the gospel after his wilderness experience. But his fame was getting ready to explode. So I, I want to read these verses here. There are 11 to be exact. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. <clears throat> and Jesus said unto her, Woman, what do, I, what do I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. I didn't ask you just to let that particular response, that phrase, to resonate in you a little bit. Mine hour has not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, thanks for the more modern translation. Twenty to thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto them, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Now, I have read this passage, as I'm sure many of you have, almost to the point that it's worn smooth with me, Arity. And just in the last few months, I have revisited it. And I've come to understand something, as I'm sure many of you have, concerning the, the gems of Scripture, 
uh, from what I, for what I, I've been told, uh, a diamond, when it's properly fasted by a gemologist, it has upwards of 57 facets. And I think sometimes we tend not to return to some of these well-worn passages because we think what, possi- what could be there that we possibly have not seen before. I want to somehow, if I may this morning, kind of turn this gem in a little different light, and maybe it will refract something to you that you have not considered prior to this, if I may. I began to wonder several months ago as to why this was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, because it seems to lack luster in comparison to the other miracles that are recorded, some 27 of them in the Gospels. It makes more sense to me, and probably it would to you as well, that it would have been more advantageous for Jesus to have done something as dynamic or as dramatic as raising somebody from the dead. Because he came to reveal that he had that power, that through his death, that he would conquer death and bring resurrection life to us. So why, at this most strategic moment in his life where he is about the the fame of him is going to spread throughout Israel, why is it that he does not do something more dramatic? Or maybe, why didn't he heal a blind man, somebody that had been born blind? Because he said, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And he said, concerning the Pharisees, you are the blind leading the blind. So why is it that his first miracle is at a wedding... And why is it turning water into wine? There's a lot of speculation about this, that Mary pressed him out of God's agenda. I'm not going to go there, but I am going to go some places maybe that in a few minutes is you're going to feel the, uh, the earth moving under your feet. And if you allow me, I want to try to connect some dots. Make sure that you don't allow yourself to get caught in some little eddy here and leave the, the main channel of the river because you are river life. So let's make sure that we stay in the main channel where the current is rather than getting caught in some little side area there. All right? Is that okay? <clears throat> There is a river, the streams, the streams uh, where I make glad the city of God. And so if we can let all of our streams converge here this morning, just for a few minutes, then uh, the current may pick up. All right. I believe that this, the reason why that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed was because the Bible itself opens at a wedding. John is the only one of the gospel narrators that seems to think that this miracle was important. The others seem to exclude it. But the Bible itself opens with a wedding. And it closes with a wedding. Maybe the reason why that John saw it is because of the gospel narrators. He was the more mystical one of the bunch. You've noticed he's called the gospel that is not one of the synoptics, or he doesn't see things similar as others do. And I like those kinds of people. We all know in part, and we see in part. And some of this I know 
that maybe you are familiar with others, it's necessary that you hear this because John, his gospel does not open with angels announcing to Mary and to shepherds and to mangers and wise men and all those kinds of things. He just reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. I think maybe he sees things in its fuller context, and maybe that's why he saw the importance of recording this first miracle took place at a wedding. Because when we go back to the opening pages of Scripture there in the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and 3, we have the wedding of Adam and Eve. Oh, it does not have the ceremony that we are familiar with, but the language is there that we use even to today. When I will be marrying a couple this coming Friday, and I probably will refer to the language that is found in the book of Genesis whenever the Lord says that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, which begs the question, why would God say, as he is officiating this marriage between Adam and Eve, why would he say that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife when there's only two human beings? There aren't any in-laws. It must be because what he said in that moment in the book of Genesis had prophetic significance. And we're talking about the first Adam, and now in John we are talking about someone that Paul would later have this revelation, this mysterious understanding of, that Jesus was the last Adam. Are you with me so far? It's okay to nod or, or do this or whatever, all right? I mean, going back into the scene of the garden, I, I'm telling you, I think that the illiteracy and understanding what happened in the first three chapters of the Bible is why there's so much doctrinal wrangling and misunderstanding today. Because if you don't see what unfolds there in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and even as it connects to the last three chapters of the Bible, you'll never understand what happens in between. It's like when I got up this morning, there's a certain sequence that I had to button my shirt. And if I don't follow that sequence, it's going to be a mess. God, we see, and it, I, I wish that he had given, through Moses, I wish he had given a, a, a clearer, more vivid picture of what is going on there. But with just a little Holy Ghost revelation, we can see maybe in between the lines. And we see that when God forms man from the dust of the earth, as we've heard so many times, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And he goes on later in Genesis 5, and he says, And he called their name Adam. Uh, my son last night, we were driving in from Wilmington, and he was uh, just really uh, throwing a lot of questions to me. He's my youngest, my 22-year-old. And uh, I know it's shocking that I have children that old. <clears throat> but I was telling him, I said, you know, Seth, the reason why that God did not create them separately, but he created them one within Adam, is it was a reflection of his oneness. God's neither male nor female. He's both. 
And I wish I had time to explore all that because before we can ever see the coming in of the fullness of the kingdom of God and returning to that Edenic state where he said, let them have dominion, we've got to address all of these erroneous ideas about authority and submission that still taint the church to the degree that women have not been restored to their rightful place in the kingdom of God. And I thought the ladies would just bite the back out of their chairs. But then he puts Adam into a deep sleep. Bear with me here. He puts Adam into a deep sleep, as you remember, and he takes from his side a rib, and from it he forms the woman. He overshadows this clay model in the same way that a man overshadows his wife in conception. And when he does, leaving his imprint, then he with, with extracts from his side the rib from which it, he forms the woman. Because, again, the woman was in the man. He only separated them so that they could procreate in their image in the same way that he had created them in his image. But you say, what does that have to do with this wedding back here in the book of John? I just need to give you a little background. So, if the Bible opens with a wedding, then should the new creation not open with a wedding, our introduction to the new creation. But again, what does that have to do with a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving unto his wife? That's what we want to talk about as much as I feel that you have a tolerance for uh, this morning. So let's go back to the wedding, the scenario. It is clear here that it was on the third day. Why, why is that significance of significance that Jesus is called along with his disciples to this wedding that was taking place at Cana? It seems as if Mary was already there and that she had been there since the first day. The wedding feast of the Old Testament times, and we're still in the Old Testament when we're reading from John chapter 1 because even though it's arranged in the New Testament portion of our Bibles, the new covenant was not sealed until Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross. So everything that Jesus did, it was still under the old covenant. He said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so these feasts last for seven days. Now, I'm going to be doing a wedding this coming Friday, and uh, the parents of the bride are actually here this morning. And uh, I assume that the reception is probably going to last for a couple of hours or maybe three hours uh, after, after the wedding. But, that, see, not so with the Jewish wedding. It went on for seven days. Mary has been there since the first day, and Jesus shows up fashionably late. Or did he? Why didn't he come the first day? Have you ever noticed that Jesus seems to consistently be late? Or is he? He's late when he's called upon by Mary and Martha, right? When Lazarus dies, and it goes on and on and on. It just seems like that he's constantly doing that. And the reason is because he doesn't live in the confines and the restraints of time. He didn't then and he doesn't now. He doesn't live according to deadlines and timelines. Isn't it interesting we call them deadlines? 
But on the third day, he shows up. And when he does, Mary immediately is pressing him with this fact that they have run out of wine, the embarrassing situation that has taken place there. And what was Jesus' immediate response? Now, I have to ask you a question here before we go any further. Would you agree with me, and I think you will have to, would you agree with me that Jesus only did those things he saw the Father doing, and he only said those things he heard the Father saying? That his life was not characterized by random events. The steps of a good man are truly ordered of the Lord. Whatever happened in his life, it was not something that ambushed him or caught him by surprise. Whatever happened in his life, he had already seen it, and I have a theory as to when he had seen it. He had seen it between 3 and 6 in the morning, the fourth watch of the night, because he would go out a great while before it was yet day. And while the womb of the morning, the matrix is opening up, the cervix of the morning is opening up, and we call it the dawn, when the sun comes hemorrhaging over the eastern sky in those hours because that is also when Jacob finally gets the revelation of where he was when he puts his head upon a rock was before the breaking of the day. Now I'm starting to feel a spirit of revelation sweep in here right now. And so that when everybody's eyes were open and they wipe away the mist of sleep and they are looking to see what is going to happen, he already knew what would happen. So before he ever got to this wedding, he knew that Mary, his mother, was going to come to him with this urgent need, but, you know, he never responded to those things that were urgent, but only those things that were important. And there is an essential difference between the two because most of us have difficulty really understanding the difference between real needs and our perceived needs. We think things that are perceived are the real needs, and it's really just the urgent pressing upon us and causing us to miss the moments in which God wants to reveal himself. So he knew that Mary was, he wasn't caught by surprise. You would think by the tone of his voice, woman, my hour has not yet come. And why would he say woman? Why didn't he say mother? Why did he say woman? Have you been listening to what I started out talking about in the garden a few minutes ago? Because all of this is a thread, a seamless thread that runs all the way through Scripture. And when he makes this statement, my hour has not yet come, he will not use that kind of phrase again. He will use it later on in the book of John and also in the book of Matthew. But he will not say my hour has come until the last week of his life. Here he says, my hour has not yet come. You know why? Because this wasn't his wedding. But his hour was coming. His wedding was coming. Your enthusiasm is underwhelming so far. Uh, His hour was coming. It was approaching. But it wouldn't be for another three years. So what they run out of is not a... They don't run out of food. They don't run out of water. They run out of what? Wine. 
You say, I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm following you. In John chapter 12, John will record these words whenever Jesus knows that his death is imminent, that it is coming, and there's nothing that can stop it. He will say, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And there were people that were standing around that when they heard him say that, they didn't understand. And the reason why was because they were trying to understand it through the, through the means of their own rationale. Greeks had come to say, can we meet him? And they were shocked whenever Philip came to Jesus and said, there's some men that have come here because they want to meet you. They want to interview you. And he starts talking about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And I'm sure that Philip, even though it's not clear in the, in the passage, that Philip probably wanted to say, Jesus, I'm not sure you understood the question. There's just some guys here that want to meet you. And you're talking about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And if it doesn't do that, it's going to abide alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And then it seems like that Jesus loses his mind even more, loses touch with reality even more. And he says, Father, glorify thy name. And then there was a voice that came from heaven that was thunderous to some. And that's the way some maybe are feeling in this room right now. You know that there's some kind of sound that is bouncing off the walls in here. But it is so indescript and so obscure to you until it sounds like nothing but thunder. But it, even if you only hear thunder, that ought to let you know that eventually you will feel the rain. There were some that said, that, I thought it was an angel. It has everything in the world to do with where we are in our particular Perception. The way you see things are not necessarily the way they are. It's just the way you see it. And the way you see it is the way you will experience it. And when we can begin to change the way we see things, then the things we see will begin to change. It all has to do with repentance. Anybody need to repent this morning? I'll get both hands up and one leg up. I repent every day. I'm not talking about just repenting from sin, but repenting unto the kingdom of God. If you stop turning, say you've got to keep turning and keep turning and keep turning because God has his way in the whirlwind. It is not so... Ooh. It, you say, oh, I have changed my mind. I have left denominationalism. I have left the old dead, dry doctrines of the past. And I have embraced. You have? Maybe you need to keep turning and keep turning and keep turning. Come on out here because the only way that God can reorient you is to first disorient you. Are anybody disoriented this morning? Oh, you ought to rejoice if you're disoriented mentally, emotionally, spiritually, every other way. You don't know where to go or what to do. We were talking about on the way up here. That's a wonderful place. Because the only way that he can reorient you is to first disorient you. And many of you have been going clockwise, and he wants to start taking you counterclockwise. He has stormy winds fulfill his word. He has his way in the whirlwind. Maybe God is getting ready to do you a great favor here at River Life and just sit down in the midst of you. I'm not off the subject. I thought I was for a minute, but that's all right. 
sit down in the midst of you and take some things out and set other things in. Phenomenon of 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 tornadoes is that they can set down into a dwelling and not even turn over the page of a Bible, yet rip a two before out of the wall and drive it into another wall miles down the road. It's amazing, astonishing to me how that happens, but that really is the activity of God because He has the ability to move so powerfully and so irresistibly with such force in a particular setting where it can leave one thing totally in place without bringing any harm or damage to it, yet take some of those things that need to go so that He can expand Himself. Hallelujah. Man, I was thinking this morning about the greatness of God, and I couldn't get away from this. How can a God as great as He is ever subtract anything from Himself and still not be less than Himself, or add to Himself and not be more than Himself, or multiply Himself by Himself and still not change the sum? How can He who is everywhere be anywhere it has everything in the world to do with us perceiving. I'd like to see the hands of everybody that's here this morning. Woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. The last week of his life, he will change that. He will say, my hour has come. He will say to his disciples, I want you to go into the city. And there, there is a man that you will see who is carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and he will take you to an upper room that is prepared where I might receive the supper with you. Because my hour has come. Now remember, he said his hour hadn't come at the wedding, but now he says my hour has come. What's the connection between his death and what he said in John 2? What is the connection? Is there a connection? I think so. Because when the disciples, whenever they approach the city, and many of you know this, but for those who are not familiar with this, I always wondered for years, you know, why wasn't Jesus more specific as to who this person would be that would host the meeting and would take them to this room that had already been prepared. He just says, you'll see a man that is carrying a pitcher of water. He doesn't say anything about whether the man is tall or whether he is portly or whether he's gangly, thin, whatever. It doesn't say anything about the ways that he's dressed. He says, you're just going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water, and if you follow him, he'll take you to that upper dimension where you're going to have revealed to you things that you never, ever knew about the Passover that has been in your religious tradition for thousands of years because I'm getting ready to show you what it's all about because their minds were blinded by the veil of the law. But I'm getting ready to rend the veil. And when I take up the bread in my hand, the cup in my hand, you're going to see what it's always been about. But this man, the reason why he was a standout was because men did not carry water. So for a man to be carrying water was not the social norm. It was meant that he was submitting to something that men normally felt were beneath them. 
to which I say there are not many men there carrying pitchers of water that are leading people to upper room experiences these days because they are more content to fit in and march in lockstep with the status quo of religion and look like, sound like, talk like everybody else and get down all the language that everybody else uses. But there are men that God is raising up in this hour that love not their lives even unto death. And they're carrying something. They have something on their shoulders. It's the government of God because the government will rest upon his shoulders. And if you will follow them, he will, they will take you to a realm where you begin to understand his deep desire for intimacy, not just occasional impartation because what's getting ready to happen in that room is an intimate encounter. So here they are all lying on the floor, reclining, the Bible describes them, reclining, not sitting like Michelangelo depicted them at high, with high back plush chairs, but they're all reclining on the floor, leaning on one elbow and eating with the other, so much so that the very position of their body in that place of humility, and see, if you're willing to get low enough, you can, if you get willing to get low enough in humility, then your ear will be able to reach the place on his breast where you can hear and he will pierce your ear with a revelation of what it means to be a bond slave. So they're all reclining there, and John is the one. John, here he is again, the author of the gospel that we chose to read from this morning. And John is listening to everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth, but what is getting ready? Because, see, they're all now, you know, their feet are dry from him washing their feet. We don't, we don't see that much anymore. We receive of the communion. I, I come from a Pentecostal persuasion where we used to wash one another's feet. And honestly, a lot of it just became contrived. It really didn't have much sincerity to it because we wanted to model that we were humbling ourselves to one another, but then we'd walk out and bite and devour one another. So it was, I'll leave that alone. That's, you can clean that up when I'm gone. But when he's washing their feet, remember whenever the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go beyond the veil, he would dress from head to toe a, a mitre that said holiness unto the Lord and garments of beauty all the way. But there was only one part of his body that was not clothed with anything. He had to walk in beyond the veil on the Day of Atonement into the very presence of God. There were the mercy seat and the, the cherubims facing one another and the glory of God emanating from it. He had to go in barefoot. So see, if we're going to get in here, we're going to have to be willing to let him find those things that we've stepped in, those things that we've walked through, those things maybe that are still tuck, stuck under our toenails, so to speak, because that's what he's doing. He's making them worthy to come into a most holy place in intimate relationship with him. How do I know that? What does that have with, with do with anything that I've said so far? Because the next thing that will happen that goes right it's missed by most people is that there's three pieces of bread sitting on the table now the gospel doesn't say that but I know from, from Hebrew literature that there's three pieces of flat unleavened bread that are laid on the table and they're stacked and there's one piece in the middle that nobody would ever touch at the Passover meal and the reason why the piece that was in the middle was because the man in the middle had never showed up That's why he's going to hang between two thieves. And so when he reaches for that piece of matzah that we would call 
that is striped and pierced. It's striped from being baked in that oven, and it's pierced, prefiguring everything that he would go through. When he reaches for that, I know it must have sucked all the air out of the room because they're thinking to himself, well, you say, well, they knew. No, they didn't know even after he had been raised from the dead. And God decided that he was going to offend them by letting a woman be the one that would tell them, and they still didn't get it. So when he reaches and he takes that, remember he said, my hour has come. You say, what's that got to do with the wedding? Well, let me back up a little bit and say that have you ever wondered where, even in the American culture, whenever we are in the reception time, that there's a little practice that really did, did not originate somewhere just for the sake of having cute photos later on that years down the road we can get out our, our, our photo album of our marriage and we can look back and say, how cute is that, that we were feeding cake to one another. This really goes back to the covenantal practice, one of the seven things that goes into the making of a covenant whenever covenant was made, either if it was between two families, two tribes, or between a man and a woman, there was always the feeding of the bread, and they would place it to the mouth of their would-be spouse and say, before I would ever let you starve, I would feed you on my own flesh. In turn, take the cup and drink from the common communion, communion, common cup, before I would ever. Are you with me so far? I would pour out my life's blood. And that's really what Jesus is doing. What he is doing, the whole body language, the whole everything that he is doing, is he's letting them know that I am about to take a wife. And some of you say, well, that's really difficult for me to accept. Well, why do you think that there was, the people were so upset when Mary is anointing his body for burial and she lets her hair down? Are you all still out there? She lets her hair down and she wipes his feet with her hair. And it upsets every religious spirit in the room. And they said, if he knew what kind of woman this was. You know, I'll tell you what their real issue was, is when they saw a woman take her hair down, that was something that a woman never did in public. She only took her hair down when she was privately with her husband, which was the indicator that she was ready to, to be with him. And so when she lets her hair down, everybody misunderstands her intentions. But Jesus understood her intentions, and he said, this woman, what she is doing right now, it will never be forgotten. It will never be forgotten. Because this woman did not have sensuous intentions. This was not some vulgar or crass thing that she was doing. She knew she couldn't marry him, but she humbled herself in the room that was filled with choking pride. And she got on her knees and she said, basically, if I know I can't, but if I could, I would conceive and carry your child because it is not right to think that you have blessed so many and ministered so many and done so many miracles, and when you die, it's going to die in you. If I could, I would conceive and carry a son that would carry on your work. And so, Jesus... When he does that, take, eat, this is my body which is broken. You take and drink this cup. It is the New Testament in my blood. You with me now? And then he says something that the dispensationalists have 
have projected into the future when he said to these men, not to us, not to us, but to those men that were sitting there in the room. He said, I will not drink wine again with you until I drink it new in my kingdom. Remember, we started out at a wedding that was where wine was being made, and Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Now he's saying, my hour has come, and he says, I won't drink wine again with you until I drink it new with you in my kingdom. Those men. Hours later, he is taken to a cross, and for six agonizing hours, as he hangs there like a piece of canvas that is stretched out, suspended between heaven and earth, he says seven things, and most of those things I don't have any problem understanding, such as when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, or I thirst. But what about when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I thought I understood that because he who knew no sin was made to be sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He had never sinned. Yet in that moment, actually hours before, he had ingested, not a literal cup, but he ingested the cup of iniquity in the garden. Whenever he said, if it be thy will, let not... You know, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. So he had ingested the iniquity of all of humanity from Adam to that point and even up until this point that we're at right now. So he says, why hast thou forsaken me? But it's the next phrases that puzzle me whenever he looks down. And you would think maybe that it's because... He has suffered such a loss of blood, and maybe he's going in and out of consciousness, and he is in some kind of delirious state. And when he finally comes to himself and he looks through eyes that are burning with blood and with perspiration and trying somehow to get the mucus that had been hurled at him from men's mouths as they mocked him and spat upon him, and he looks down through all of that from the cross... And he sees his mother, and he says something rather strange. He says, Woman, behold your son. Now that seems insensitive, doesn't it? You would think it's bad enough that she's standing there at the foot of the cross, and she can feel the blood of her son splattering against her face, and she can hear the insults and the cursing of these. And, and, and Jesus, even as he's crying out like David described, he even is seeing spirits that look like the bulls of Bashan. He is looking down at the foot of the cross, and he sees these terrible spirits that are manifesting in him. And then he's hearing a thief on the other side that says, if you are the Son of God, which followed him all of his ministry, from the wilderness all the way to the cross, questioning his identity, which is the real issue for the church today. Today is understanding who we really are in Christ. Most people know when they were born, but they don't know why they were born. Or they think that they came from their parents when really they only came through them because you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And when we settle the question of identity, then anything that previously has discouraged us or kept us away from a sense of identity will evaporate like fog in the morning sun. Woman, behold your son. He's bleeding from every orifice in his body. You can hear his lungs wheezing because the cat of nine tails has so 
opened up his chest cavity and his torso until you can literally see his intestines bulging through his body. And he says, woman, behold your son. What's, what's up with that? Why would he do that? Was he saying, look at what sin has done to your son? No, that's not what he's doing at all because the next statement will help you to understand what Jesus was doing. He looks down at John. John, where's the rest of them? Because John got it. <laughs> when the rest of them are running and hiding behind closed doors, John's got it, doesn't he? He looks down at John and he says, Son! Wait a minute. He doesn't say John. He doesn't say my disciple. He doesn't say my follower. He calls him his son. Son, behold your mother. Well, it would seem like that what he is doing is that he is just being a good son because he is the eldest of seven children. He's got seven half-brothers and sisters. So being the eldest is his responsibility in death to make sure that his mother, who is going to be widowed, is being cared for. But are you ready for this? There's more to it than that. Because I've tried to connect the cross, which really is going to lead to a garden tomb because the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. And in between there's a garden. So he's going to look at her and say, Son, behold thy mother. You think, well, he's just given the care of his mother to... Am I boring y'all with this? I wasn't sure about this when I came this morning. But I'm pretty sure about it now. Remember, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Where is Joseph? Apparently Joseph had died many years before. Man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. You say, wow, that's really stretching it. Oh, really? Because after he says that, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani, which the people there at the cross thought he was calling for Elijah. Now, I was connecting these dots some time ago in a meeting in New York, and there was a young man sitting on the front row, and he began to sob convulsively when I said this, and I connected the garden with what happened at the cross and everything in between that I've been trying to say here this morning. And he began to sob, and I looked down at his Bible, and I realized that it was not in English, and I could tell because I'm somewhat familiar with Greek, it, it wasn't Greek. And later on, he came up to me because in a moment of what I thought was just mere inspiration, I said what Jesus was doing is that he was leaving his father and mother, the origin of his flesh, that he might cleave unto his wife, who was the church, because there is going to be a Roman soldier that is going to take a spear after he says it is finished and rend it through his side. And when he does, blood and water comes out. Was this a random act of brutality? No. This was really what was pictured in the garden whenever Adam was put into a deep sleep and his bride was taken from his side. And so when I said that, and I said what was Jesus was doing is that he was leaving the origin of his natural flesh so that he might cleave unto his wife, who is the church, he began to sob. And he came up to me afterwards, and he says, I've been studying the original languages in the Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke in those days. It's a language that's almost been totally lost. And what Jesus was really saying as he was hanging from the cross there is he says, My father, my father, why have you left me a bachelor without a wife? And in that moment, his side is opened up, and he is given his bride, which is the church. Now, before you pick up stones at me here this morning, let me just let you know 
that whenever he emerges from the tomb on the third day, I alluded to it a moment ago, there is a woman, and it's a Mary, by the way. She's not pristine in nature as the one who carried him in her womb, but it's a Mary. And uh, (laughs) she is the one, as he comes out of a tomb, that he had turned into a womb because he was the first begotten of the dead. How do you take death and you tie it to to, to a birth. Well, he did. He went into death and turned that tomb literally into a womb. And that the, the head who is Christ emerged in the same way that a child emerges head first out of a mother's womb. And there was Mary standing in the morning light, and she sees this silhouetted man there, and she thinks she supposes that he is the gardener because she can't really see clear because she is blinded by her own tears and trauma. I just Maybe I can make this a little more practical for you and tell you that the more traumatic experiences that you go through and losses that you experience, if you will stay and continue to walk through the process of death, burial, and resurrection... And you will not allow yourself to be confined or sequestered somewhere to those who are just going to live in the memory and the pain of the past. But you will get up and keep going to the tomb. You will eventually see that the tomb that was sealed by religion, that that stone has been rolled away, not so that he could get out because he will walk through doors, but so that we can get in. And so when she turns, John says she supposed him to be the gardener. And when he said, Mary, she said, Rabboni. Well, see, I want to submit to you that she was right all along. She was surprised in the supposition that he was a gardener. The truth is, is that he's always been a gardener. And she's going to conceive the seed of who he is. And that's why that the, people, the, the disciples could not accept. They said, that is nothing more than a fantasy. You're hallucinating because you've been so blinded by your own trauma. But he did get his church. He did get his bride. Because on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come. And they're in that, back in that room again where he told them, I won't drink wine again. I'll drink it new with you. And you know what happened at 9 o'clock in the morning. The bars weren't open yet. But you know what happened, don't you? Because Jesus showed up, and as a friend of mine puts it, Jesus showed up. And he popped a cork on a vintage of wine that had never been tasted before and toasted the coming of his kingdom. But that was three days ago. (laughs) Jesus is about to show up again in the third day. Are you with me? If we believe that we are in that third day. There is something. We have, we have tasted and we have seen a few things. We've tasted and seen a few things. But he has been waiting. There's something that has been locked away that he is waiting on us to taste. It's going to cause us to come into. I hope this doesn't just sound theoretical to you. He's going to, he's going to cause us to come into a realm of intimacy with him that transcends everything that every previous generation has ever known 
where we will understand the gospel of grace and we will be naked and not ashamed as they were in the garden. And we will be delivered from the fear of men's opinions and speculations and inspection. And we will be so comfortable with who we are, we will be able to be totally naked and not ashamed. And know that we, too, have left our mother and father to cleave unto him. I know, I know I hear some of those theological minds in the rooms that are, that are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's in the future. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now I'm going to mess you up even more. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe it is, or maybe chapter 7 says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. I'm not going to be joined to the Lord in the future. I am joined to him now. How many of you want greater levels of intimacy with Jesus? Some of you are not sure, are you? You want greater levels of intimacy with Jesus? If you do, and you are not already married to him, then Jesus is a fornicator. Because he doesn't have intimacy. with He only has intimacy with those he is married to. So if you're not married to him yet, and you're not already at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then you're making him a fornicator. Wow, that went over really big in here. Do I understand all this? No. Do I understand all this? Remember I told you, though, I'm reaching for it. And I'm not, I'm not content just to, you know, go in a meeting and, and, and say, you know, more, Lord, more, Lord. I mean, that's important that, you know, there's not a renewal stream that I probably haven't been a part of. But somehow it's got, God has got to give us a voice that clearly defines it, that brings us out of our wildernesses. Hallelujah. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. There's Ephesians 5. And we, you know, we take that platform to start giving marital counseling when in reality that's not so much what Paul was talking about. Husbands, love your wives, and as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that it might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Right. See, I, I come from a religious tradition, and I'm almost done. Trust me. Really, you can trust me. I come from a religious tradition that so conditioned me and so crippled me emotionally. Really, crippled me emotionally that I thought it was about my performance. I was convinced that I was to present myself to him a glorious church when he says that he would present unto himself a glorious church. I was always studying, I was always studying to show myself approved, a workman unto God, when I realized that I should be studying to find out that I'm already approved, not to study to be approved. I was like the woman in the Song of Solomon, that once he finally cast his eye on me, I was convinced that he couldn't ever really be interested in me because I'd been burned black by the sun. And the reason why I was burnt out with church and church as usual, which is a lot of people leaving the conventional church these days, and it has nothing to do with whether or not they love God. It has nothing to do with whether they are rebellious. It has nothing to do with whether they want accountability or anything of the kind. But they know that they're, they're desperate for something more. Many believers have become leavers. They're not agnostics. They love God as much as they ever have. You wonder why they don't want to go to church anymore because they've already been to church. They've been there, done that. And they know that there must be something.
more. And she said, don't look at me, the Shulamite. Don't look at me because I've been burned black. Why? Because her mother had made her keeper of her children's vineyard, but her own she had neglected, which sounds like church. As soon as we get you in church, we've got to get you busy to keep you out of trouble. And so what we do is we keep you taking care of everybody else's vineyard and not cultivating your own. Then you get burnt out by church. Now I'm in trouble. The views and the opinions that have preceded. So Ephesians 5, go ahead and stand if you will. That, that helps me to try to quit. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What, what was that all about? This I speak concerning the mystery of Christ and his church. I, don't, I still don't think we understand the mystery of Christ and his church. I think we're getting there. Amen? Maybe that's why in John, by the time you get to John chapter 5, what, what do you guys do? Do you all play music? While the ministry, t- yeah, okay. Um, maybe that's why by the time you, you get to uh, John chapter 4, Jesus is doing something that is totally taboo. He has, he has the audacity as a young Jewish single man to talk to a woman in public. A, a woman in public. I mean, you, you realize just, just how risque that was? You realize just how much that could have been grossly misunderstood? This woman who has at, at, at the well in the middle of the day. She's been with five men. And I think we speculate too much about that. I don't think that she was some nymphomaniac. I don't think that she was some woman that just couldn't be satisfied by one man. She'd been with five men. The one she was with was not her own. Maybe she'd been divorced. Like a lot of people in church have been divorced. You've been thrown out of the best churches in the, in the neighborhood, right? Because <laughs> they really didn't understand your passion and your desire. So Jesus was not trying to expose her. He was not grilling her. He says, yeah, you, 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 you finally told the truth. You've been with five men. The one you're with now is not your husband. You say, what's that got to do with the bride thing? Because if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find out every bride, every potential bride was always found at a well. And this is the only woman that Jesus talks to at a well. That really offends religious minds to say that Jesus is going to find those who have been disenfranchised, those who have been despised and rejected. He's going to find them because he knows where the watering holes are. <laughs> and he's going to wait till all the disciples, remember they're gone. He lets them, he releases them for a while because he knows that they're not going to understand what's getting ready to happen. <laughs> See, I believe in harvest, and I, I hope I haven't worn you guys out this morning. I, I believe in harvest, but I'm going to tell you how I believe harvest is going to take place. It's, it's mirrored right there in that encounter with the woman. Because this woman, when that, once they sort, sort everything out, she goes running back into the village. And she is not dodging and, you know, looking around every corner concerned that she's going to run into somebody. No, she goes running into the village and says, Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Right? 
And there must have been something so transformative that had taken place in her that they could see it on her face. And instantly they forgot about everything that had been true of her. Right? And so, and meanwhile, you know, so that sounds like we're watching Batman or something. Meanwhile, the disciples, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> oh, come on, laugh with me or laugh at me or something. I, I'm telling you. So, so anyway, the disciples come back and say, what's been going on? Did somebody give you something to eat? And he says, no, I, I, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. What? Why'd you send us? I think that maybe that's what it said. Why'd you send us? You got meat to eat that, you don't, that we don't know about? And then all of a sudden, it sounds like Jesus really freaks out. Say no! Say not it is four months to the harvest. Behold, the fields are white unto harvest. I think what Jesus was basically saying, if you'll just turn around, behold, look, if you'll just turn around, you're going to see this whole village that has turned out. Because it doesn't take four months. It doesn't take the plowing of the ground, the hard work of intercession like we've always thought. <laughs> the plowing of the ground, the sowing of the seed, the waiting for the rain, the coming of the sun, the, the root system to be put down, and the blade, the ear, and the full corn in the ear. If you will understand that people can have an intimate encounter with God, harvest can come in four hours instead of four months. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So, Lord, this morning... Breathe on us. Breathe on us. Breathe on us. Lord, we say breathe on us. Won't you breathe on us? we thank you for transcendent experiences this morning that change us not just change the mind but we, we pray Lord for such a transcendent experience such a rending of the veil and the limitations of our own thinking that there's actually something that begins to change in the very molecular structure of our bodies we ask for that now Lord transformation the transformation comes Lord by increasing levels of intimacy Lord we know that there is a wonder that is appearing in the heavens and it is a church that is clothed in the sun and she's ready to give birth to a man child she's ready to give birth She's ready to give birth, Lord, to an authority that is unlike anything that the nations have ever seen. While everything is shaking, the foundations of economies and politics and the 
all of these faulty foundations, Lord, are cracking under the weight of your voice. As it starts imploding down around men's ankles, the kingdom of God is emerging. And we are so thankful, Lord, that we are here this morning and we know that you are getting ready to shock us with our own personal relevance. You're getting ready to shock us. There are people in this room that just go along to get along. There are people in this room that come here every week just to get encouragement. And that's all well and good. But Lord, you're getting ready to cause an awakening. You're getting ready to cause people that are going to experience the spirit of adoption as it begins to hover over them in their place of work, in their home. And there's going to be an awakening and a voice from heaven that is going to confirm that they are truly your son and daughter in whom you are well pleased. And they will begin to shake, Lord. They will begin to shake under the power of what has shaken them. And it will begin to cause a shaking all around them. So we ask for you to breathe on us, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I'm I'm asking for this church. I pray for this church corporately. And uh, I know that there's been some wonderful things that have happened in the last few months from the the uh, sketchy reports that I received. You've come through a lot. You've gone through a lot. I will tell you, Byron, something I felt the Lord spoke to me during the worship time. And uh, he started talking to me about the anointing oil that is made after the art of the apothecary in Exodus 30. And he says, you know, the way the oil, a lot of people, when they, especially in charismatic circles, when they hear the word anointing, they think it's something ethereal, it just falls out of the air. And really the anointing oil that had those five compounded ingredients in it that had certain balances, one not more than another. There had to be so much myrrh, so much calamus, so much cinnamon. All right? The balance had to be right. And all of that was a process. All of that was gathered from reeds that grew by the river and by scrubby brushes in dry and arid climates from extremes. And so what's been happening here in the last few years is God has been collecting all of the compound ingredients that is going to go into a new anointing. And the freight, the crushing, I know that there's been some tragedies here. The crushing that has been experienced is the compounding. It's not something God is doing to you. I know you probably sorted through that, but I say, I really do believe that there is fresh oil that is coming to this place. Because the anointing oil is not something that just falls. It's not something that just comes about, you know, randomly, without rhyme or reason. It is a process. And when it comes, it is because all of those ingredients have been brought here through people. Some of you have gone through some really bitter things. Some of you have gone through some really sweet things. It's the sweet cinnamon. Some of you have gone through the myrrh, the bleeding of the tree, the resin of the tree, the little teardrops that constantly are pressing out of every pore of your being. But God is getting ready to compound that, because, and He's going to add a hint of oil to it. And I tell you, by the Spirit of God, you guys... Maybe you have been to some degree. I know that there's some things that have been in the news maybe in the last few years. But there's going to be such a fragrance that is going to waft out of this place. I'm believing that when people drive down. What's this road out here? 21. 
I believe that when people drive down this road, they're going to be drawn to the fragrance before they ever see the sign. They're going to smell it. They're going to smell it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for increasing levels of intimacy. We thank you for a greater revelation of what it means to be the bride of Christ. Know that we, Lord, are heirs and join heirs with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you guys have ministry teams for people.